The Culture Guy Podcast. Episode 3. This time with a guest from... Well, you'll find out in a second. Welcome to the Culture Guy Podcast, Episode 3. And this is the fall episode, the first of probably two fall episodes. Well, fall only if you live in the Northern Hemisphere. Today I have a guest with me who also hails from North America. She is from the United States but currently lives in Mexico. Again, welcome to the Culture Guy podcast. As you know by now, this is a show dedicated to all of you who are passionate about cultures and how culture influences everything we do. The way we talk, the way we listen, the way we act or react, the way we feel, and the way we see the world. This is a program and a place for you to connect and engage with people from around the world who care about cultural understanding and who care about making meaningful global connections, fostering diversity. Together, I'm a strong believer, together we will learn on this show how culture shapes all of our behaviors and how we can inspire, motivate, lead and communicate better across cultures. Thank you for joining me. I'm your host, Christian Hoeverle, otherwise known as the Culture Guy, on this journey to becoming agents of peace. Because I'm a strong believer that together we will make the world a more peaceful place by helping people from different cultures understand each other better. Just imagine this, and we've talked about this on previous episodes. Imagine you are working on a foreign assignment. You're working abroad. Your ability to speak and to understand the language of your host country is improving day by day. You're an expert in your professional field, and you know how to lead. Well, in principle. Your success at home is probably one of the main reasons why you were sent here, why you're here today working for your company or for your organization abroad. But now you're in another culture and you feel like the proverbial fish out of water and sometimes you wonder if all your A players in your team really hear what you tell them in the meetings you have with them, you sense that you're not really getting through to some of them. And then you remember that back home, your results were better. 
So what could that be? What can you do about it? And you may have noticed by now, it's the culture. It's the way we communicate, the way we transfer ideas and um, relay information and the way we try to elicit the best out of the people that we work with is completely shaped by the way we brought, brought we were brought up and the way our culture has determined the way that we are human beings and we've talked about this on previous episodes with the guests that we had on so i would encourage you to go back to the archive on stitcher or on iTunes or even on my website that will be even better you go to theculturemastery.com forward slash blog and you'll find all the previous shows with all the show notes and information about our guests and as it is tradition now with our guests we want to get their perspective on what it is like to cross cultures what it is um, that we can do as originally monocultural people to become a little more versed in the way we communicate across that cultural divide. As I said, this is the first fall episode, um, fall or autumn, as they say in Great Britain or in other parts of the English-speaking world. This is the fall season in the Northern Hemisphere. The Christmas season is upon us. All the festivities that Christian culture brings with it. But let's not forget that there are other regions in the world where Christian traditions or the traditions that came out of mainland Europe may not necessarily be traditions in other parts of the world. And one of the guests, um, or the guests that we have on today is very experienced in crossing what we consider to be the Western world with Eastern mindset and Eastern culture. Today I have with me Diane Hoffner Sapphire, who is the creator of the cultural detective method that I'm so happy to be using in in our cultural um, training programs and coaching programs. And she'll tell us more about how cultural detective works and how it may be different from some of the methods that you've experienced in in your professional career. So without further ado, um, let's hear what Diane has to say. And here I am today on the Culture Guide podcast with Diane Hofner, and I hope I'm saying it right. Is it Sapphire or is it Sapphire? I think it used to be Sapphire quite beautifully, but nowadays we say Sapphire. <laughs> so I'm here today with Diane Sapphire, and she lives in beautiful Mazatlan, Mexico, but she is originally from the U.S. Midwest, and she has been a lifelong interculturalist. Thank you for taking time to be on the call today, Diane. I'm very happy to be here with you, Christian. Thanks. And those of you who have heard her name before may also know that Diane is the mastermind, the big brain behind the cultural detective method, which I'm proud to be facilitated in or, or certified in to be a facilitator. And I've, many of the colleagues of ours at work in the cross-cultural field use the cultural detective method in a nutshell for those of our listeners who are not quite aware what the cultural detective is, Diane. Could you describe that in layman's terms, so to say? Sure. Cultural detective is a process. It, we have an online tool and also PDFs, but it's a process for helping people really know uh, themselves better as cultural beings and learn to collaborate and team better across 
cultures and across differences. And what's really nice is it's a process. So it's not just based on cultural dimensions like so many of the tools. You can use dimensions in combination, but you really get at the layers of diversity. So you get at my personality, my gender, my sexual orientation, my spiritual tradition, my nationality, etc. So in that sense, it's really robust, very easy to use, and yet very developmental. People who are new to working across cultures benefit greatly from it, and people like you and me who've been doing it all our lives still have a lot to learn. <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, yes. And you, you already made the uh, comparison or, or you made the, the caveat that it's it's not based the cultural detective is not based on undimensional comparisons like so many other tools out there um, and I know you're an organizational development specialist so how do you deal with human resource departments or OD departments or training and learning and uh, development departments within your client organizations when they ask for the, the heart um, psychometric analysis, if they want the assessment and they need the dimensional work. And, and the CD does not necessarily answer that question, at least not according to some of the desires on the client side. How do you, how do you explain that? Well, if clients really want a psychometric in Instrument. There are not many available in the di cultural dimension space either, ironically. Yes. <laughs> Most of the dimension-based models are uh, little online profiles or, or profiles you, you know, that you take yourself and you're given a score, a percentage score. So I really, as an OD consultant, I go in with clients and really try to clarify what are they trying to achieve? What, what are their business goals for this year and for the next three to five years? And what helps them get there and what will get in the way and then work with them on a strategy to achieve that. So a lot of times people will call in and they want an assessment instrument, but when I ask them, what do you want to assess, it's shocking how few people can actually answer that question. Mm. <laughs> so I, as an OD person, I really feel like an assessment instrument is kind of the flavor of the month and it's a checkbox, you know. Oh, thank you for saying this. Oh, you, you, you just sang my song. <laughs> this is, this is one of the pet peeves, I guess, we as cross-culturalists have that we often deal with counterparts on our client side who go through checklists and they want to mark it off as done and completed and they tend to ignore that cultural development and cultural competence is, is a process. It's, it's a learning experience, not something you inject with a training program or that you can um, assess at one time with a tool, correct? Exactly, exactly. It would be great to have the little spray bottle and we spray out the intercultural competence and everybody inhales it, but unfortunately it doesn't. So, it's, it's a practice, intercultural competence is a practice like anything else worth living. <laughs> so, so that spray does not exist, is, is that what you're saying? Exactly. Okay, so good. So, okay, listeners, stop looking for it. The spray is not out there. Or if you want to develop it, please let us know. We might be the first clients of yours. So... Um, you, you've been, you told me earlier that you've been a, a lifelong interculturalist. When, and I, I don't want to know how old you are, but I want to know when did that start for you? How, how did you know this is the field that you want to work in, that you're passionate about this? Oh, now you're going to regret asking me that, Christian, because it started when I was about 11 years old. Nice. 
I grew up in the U.S. Midwest, and uh, my family picked up and moved out to Flagstaff, Arizona when I was 11. And uh, I grew up in New Munster, Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. That's how we pronounced it. But everybody in town was German Catholic. Mm -hmm. So out in Arizona, all the Catholics tended to be, well, not all, but they were Mexican, and most of the Mass was in Spanish, Mariachi Mass. And I I didn't understand my Mass. Most of the white people back in the 70s in Flagstaff were Mormon, and at that time their church wasn't that inclusive, so they didn't want to have anything to do with me. So most of my friends, fortunately for me, were Navajo and Hopi, Diné and Hopi. And, uh, yeah, I just remember being bullied terribly. I remember going around on the merry-go-round when I was 11, and they'd throw balls at my head and make fun of me and thinking, gosh, I really got to learn how to do transitions better. I got to learn how to be more flexible. This world's changing. <laughs> so so the motivators for, for the bullying or for the disconnect were mainly religion and language? Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, it was really cultural. I mean, I had gone to Catholic school in, in Wisconsin, so I remember raising my hand in sixth grade in Arizona saying, may I use the lavatory, please? Mm-hmm. You know, and how kids are for three years my nickname was Lab Rat because, oh of course, in a public school in Arizona, they didn't use the term lavatory. Mm-hmm. So, so it was just cultural thing. Okay. And I also know that you like are... That, but then when I was 12, I... Go ahead, yeah. Sorry, there's a lag on the Skype, probably. Well, we'll deal with it. So keep going. When I was 12, I just saved up my babysitting money and yeah, when I was 12, I saved up my babysitting money and uh, did a study abroad just for three months in Mexico City, and that got me hooked. <laughs> mm-hmm. So you also spent, aside from spending extensive time in the Spanish-speaking world and mainly in Mexico, where you currently reside, but you've also had um, quite quite some experience in Japan, correct? Right. I went to Japan uh, my sophomore year. of my undergraduate college and then after I graduated I lived there for about 12 or 13 years so Japan is definitely my first uh, well to one of one of my three top homes in this world I love Japan and you're also fluent in Japanese I would assume right oh yes yes I lived in Japan from the time I was 18 till I was about 32 33 so mm-hmm. my whole when I lived in Japan my question was can I come back home and be US American as an adult that was a huge question for me and after trying a few times now some you know I think every time I come back to the States I, I last about five years and then I go abroad again so <laughs> I don't know if I can really answer that <laughs> so was it harder for you to adjust to the culture that was foreign to you and that you entered with the expectation of differences was that harder or was it harder to return back to your native culture um, and and reintegrate after having spent so many years abroad Yeah, that's a good question. For me, always reentry is more challenging. Uh, and I think it depends on the person. But I, I do think that for, you know, especially the first one or two times that you really go to live overseas, there is so much new. You know, when I first went to Mexico as, as a kid, it was, you know, everything was new and different. You know, I remember sitting in coffee shops with my high school friends and they'd tell a joke and I'd laugh along and 
you know, you laugh along even though you don't understand it because you want to fit in and you want to have fun. And then they turn to you and say, well, did you understand the joke? Tell us, tell us what you understood. And you feel totally like a fool, Mm -hmm. you know, but that's, uh, you know, you, and then in Japan, you know, everything is the, the logic is different. The way you saw a piece of wood, you know, do you pull the saw or push the saw? Everything in Japan is pretty much opposite to a Western-based logic. So that was just a whole different uh, level of acculturation or adaptation. And then coming back to the States, you know, I at 32 or 33, I hadn't lived in the U.S. since I was 16 years old, 17 years old. So that was just a huge uh, shift back. And, and you do. When you come home, you think that people are going to be the same. You think your your home is going to be the same. And of course, it's not at all. And they don't really care a whole lot. They they are interested in what you did overseas, but only for about 15 minutes. Right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. I remember those days when I came home after my first United States experience, when I came back to Germany and thought that everybody needs to know all my experiences and I was ready to tell all my stories and as you said they were interested for about 15 maybe 17 minutes and that was frustrating to to realize that their life went on without me and they've had their own experiences and we didn't share those and there's a little bit of a disconnect with people that you think you know intimately well and it's um, you gain a lot while you live abroad and you lose a little bit when you come back when you realize there's part of the connections you had are are gone or are stretched apart very far and it's it's not always easy to reconnect on the same level exactly and and yet you know there's the beauty all all those friends i made in japan and the the work contacts i'm heading back in september now because uh, when i lived in tokyo uh, we worked for six years, a small group of us, to start a CTAR chapter in mm-hmm. Tokyo. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we founded CTAR Japan. Well, in September, it's already celebrating its 30th anniversary. <laughs> for, the, for those of us uh, or those of the listeners that may not be familiar with that acronym, CTAR stands for? The Society for Intercultural Education, Training, and Research. So it's an interdisciplinary group of people in People like uh, Christian and me. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for the clarification. <laughs> so thinking back to your time in Japan, what, what, what would you remember as one of the m- most uh, significant cultural fool moments you had where you were the fool in the new culture? Oh, gosh, there were so many. <laughs> um, one that comes to mind is I, uh, the president of one of my clients. Uh, this would be a U.S.-based client but I worked with them pretty much full time uh, in Japan. So I was embedded in the organization in Japan. But the president of the Japan organization, uh, I'm sorry, the, pre- the US president came to me one day and he said, you know, this Japanese president is driving me nuts. I just don't understand him. I'm really giving him another three months, Diane, and it's up to you to prove otherwise that I shouldn't fire him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and I just remember, you know, I I so admired the Japanese president. He was a good friend of mine. They they both were, and so I, you know, young, you know, twenty seven, twenty eight year old organization development consultant. Maybe by then I was thirty two. You know, for for three months I did every every kind of team building intervention. 
connection between these two gentlemen I could come up with, you know, and we, we facilitate, I facilitated my heart out. And then finally, about three months later, it was coming down to the wire. And I really thought the Japanese guy was going to lose his job. And uh, we had a meeting and I was facilitating again. And finally, the, the Japanese guy, he just got so mad. He stood up totally out of character stood up, walked over to the U.S. president, standing right in his face, pointed his finger in his face. He's like, the problem with you is blah, 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 blah. And oh, just wow. a tirade of anger just shooting through his finger at this U.S. president's face. And, you know, here I am crawling under the table thinking, oh, my gosh, not only did he lose his job, now I've lost my job. <laughs> <laughs> Oh boy. And uh, after, after the president was done, he sat down and the U.S. guy leaned back in his chair and he stretched out his arms and he got this big smile on his face and he goes, you know, Tanaka-san, that's the first time in six years of working with you that I knew how you felt. Thank you for your honesty. Because what had been upsetting him was his poker face, you know, and that he couldn't read him. Mm-hmm. So it was really a, a, a culture shock kind of thing. It was a not knowing the cultural cues and not being able to trust because he didn't feel like he really knew what Tanaka-san was thinking in his brain. And I just, that was a cultural fool moment to me because it was just like, you know, he... I, I felt so inadequate as an organization development facilitator, as an interculturalist, to have foreseen that that kind of a, a catharsis was what was needed, and yet mm-hmm. that was exactly what was needed, you know. Nice. And so out of touch with the U.S. that I didn't understand that the the, the American guy would be so happy to get have somebody be yelling at him. <laughs> the, that, that's an excellent story. How, that reminds me of the recent development that went through the news and um, was exaggerated maybe a little bit by by uh, Western media, but the case of the first uh, female non-Japanese executive at Toyota and her mm. and her lapse of judgment maybe or her her incident with yes, drugs, drugs that are not licensed in Japan um what do you make of that case um and and to to those listeners who are not familiar with the case there was a a female senior executive first time a female non-Japanese was promoted to a senior executive role within Toyota and she was caught Uh, bringing oxycodone to Japan, which is highly regulated and it's illegal to bring it into the country without proper permission. And the uh, CEO of Toyota had to publicly um, excuse his employee and make an apology to the country and to to the economy. So what do you make of this case? Is this a a cultural fool moment or is this a matter of um, bad preparation? How do you view this? Well, to me, it's very much both. Um, now, I do not know any either of those people involved personally, but um, I've worked quite a bit with Toyota over the years. They And I really commend what the CEO is doing to diversify his management team and the, the, the corporate culture as a whole. Kudos to, to their endeavors. But yeah, this was classic to me because this, evidently this woman, you know, th- she probably really needed these drugs that she had. She was in Japan, U- U.S. American woman, 
couldn't get them there because she needed to because they're illegal and yet so I suppose it was a combination of that pressure a US American executive feels to achieve you have this control orientation that everything is in my power I can you know I got to make it work I got to I got to achieve the task and I need this this medicine in order to achieve my task so I'll mm-hmm. find a loophole I'll find a way to get it in mm-hmm. Whereas on the Japanese side of things, boy, especially if you are a public figure, you will follow the kata, follow the way things are done, and you want to be on best behavior, and you don't want to be bending laws or breaking laws, and you don't you you are the face of the company. If you lose face for yourself, you're losing face for the whole organization. So, yeah, it it's it's very sad story to me. I've had a, a, a comparative experience with one of my clients, and it—I it, it, mean, it's—it's it's a a minor incident compared to the Toyota story, where a U.S. employee in a Japanese organization got um, pulled over by a, a police officer in, in Japanese traffic, and it was a minor traffic transgression. Yet he had to jump through many, many hoops within his organization to make sure that um, everybody apologizes and that the company saves face, that the non-Japanese American employee screwed up and everybody had to to make amends, so to say. And for the American employee, this was highly unorthodox and he did not know what happened. Right, right. Years ago when, you know, we had a lot of Japanese who would come here to the U.S. for, for on-the-job training, etc. One of the first things we'd have to tell them is if you're in a traffic accident, do not apologize. You know, Japanese response is, even if it's the other person's fault, you're in a traffic accident, everybody's apologizing, everybody's bowing to each other. And it's like in U.S. culture, apology is synonymous with guilt, so just do not do it. And that's like taking blood out of a person. I mean, it's just so ingrained in you. Um, and the other example, your example reminds me of, Christian, is um, working with tax, what do you call them, tax management programs in, in for-profit organizations. Because a lot of times U.S. companies or even Western European companies will go to Japan and they'll send out a tax manager to say, okay, organization here in Japan, how can we save money on our tax bill? Whereas a standard Japanese response is, what are you talking about? Mm-hmm. We don't want, you know, it's our, our duty, our, our fiduciary duty, our duty as citizens to pay taxes and, you know, uh, support our community here. Mm-hmm. And if you as a foreign capital company are trying to come in here and save money on taxes, you're just trying to rip off the Japanese public mm-hmm. and go home. You know, it's just that's, a huge That's a huge, a huge difference, yes. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing those insights on 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 Japan and and your your transition into the country and back home or back on the other side of the Pacific. Um, I, I want to touch on something else that that might be interesting to our our listeners. You also have been on faculty for I don't know how many years with the SIIC, the Summer Institute for. In- Intercultural communication. Exactly. Thank you very much. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? And and you just returned from teaching there this summer. So what, what what's in it for uh, cross culturalists, interculturalists who who want to brush up on their skills? Sure. SIC uh, started originally at Stanford University. So I first attended there in 1982 as a fellow. 
Uh, and I've been on the faculty now. Uh, SIC nowadays takes place at Reed College in Portland, Oregon every July. And it is the premier uh, training ground, I would say, professional development opportunity for intercultural worldwide there are, fortunately nowadays there are a lot more opportunities in Asia in Europe in Oceania uh, but the Institute in Portland uh, occurs over two weeks during July every year the URL is intercultural.org people can sign up for a one-day workshop two days three days five days uh, and there are evening sessions as well and just a real premier faculty I have been blessed to I think this year was my 25th year on the faculty there oh, wow. so it's it's been a great touchstone for me we'll make sure to post the link um, in the show notes and we'll also post everything um, our listeners need to get in touch with you so um, Diane what's what's the website you would like to send people to what's your Twitter handle how can people get in touch with you what's the best way to get a hold of you yeah, I would love to hear uh, from people, Christian. Our website is www.culturaldetective.com. There you can easily subscribe to a, a free webinar that we put on or, or to Cultural Detective Online, which is the online tool that helps you have the ongoing practice you need to develop intercultural competence. We're on Twitter. It, the handle is uh, Cultural Detect. And we have company and group pages on LinkedIn as well as on Facebook. Mm. We have a YouTube feed as well. So look forward to seeing you. We'll, we'll make sure to post those links in the show notes. And if you follow me, um, make sure that you check out who I retweet because I retweet Diane's stuff quite a bit. So if you can't find her right away, you might be able to find her through my Twitter feed. Diane, it's been a pleasure having you on the program, and time is flying. I think we need to schedule another call a year from now or maybe <laughs> sooner to, to, to get more wisdom and insight from you. As, as a parting thought, um, and I, I do this with, with all our guests on the show, what would be your, your top recommendation for people who cross cultures, either for their, their professional lives or for their personal lives or both? What, what, is, what is some key advice you'd give to people? First, I would say don't take offense. Just take any sense of offense you have and set it aside and realize that there is no such thing as common sense. Common sense is only common to those who share it, and so common sense is really cultural sense. So when you're feeling offended, set that aside and take a, an attitude of curiosity about what is the cultural sense at play here, and let me learn about that. Beautiful. I couldn't say it any better. This is awesome. Thank you so much for being on the program, Diane. We'll make sure that our listeners get all the information they need to get in touch with you. I hope to get your comments. Um, you can comment either on iTunes or you can comment on the blog, the Culture Mastery blog in the comment section, or you can comment on, on all the other social media tools that we share this podcast with. Make sure you give us your response. Make sure you give Diane some response and encouragement to, to continue our work. And once again, thank you very much, Diane. It's been a huge pleasure. Oh, thank you, Christian. Good luck with the podcast. I'm really glad you're doing it. Thank you. You have a great day and um, hasta la vista to Mexico, I guess. Ay, gracias. Bye-bye. This was our talk with 
Diane Hoffner Sapphire. The Cultural Detective Queen. I just want to have her with me in a miniature version carrying around with me in my pocket. She's got so much wisdom to share. Because common sense is not common when you're crossing cultures. She said so, and I'm in full agreement. Again, to find Diane or the Cultural Detective online, go to www.culturaldetective.com. Find her on Twitter at Cultural Detect and Cultural Detective is also on Facebook and LinkedIn. Also make sure to check out the Summer Institute for Intercultural Communication. They have all the um, details on the sessions that were this year and you can get on their mailing list to be in the loop for the upcoming sessions next year. And we learned one more thing today, which is trust your process. Even when you're recording a podcast, technology is not always our friend. Or is it? See, many of these recordings we do via Skype, and we're at the mercy of technology. So sometimes when audio cups out, what can you do? You can just course correct and continue and hope for the best, right? And the same may be true in cultural interactions. You never know. Is your counterpart really listening? Or are they fading out? Or are they maybe thinking about what you told them because they're still processing the information? So just because you have an interference doesn't mean that there is a disconnect. There may just be a little bit of a delay. Having said all that, this was the first fall episode of the Culture Guy podcast. You can find us online at, well, let's say Twitter first. You can find us on my Twitter handle, which is Hoeverle, at Hoeverle, H-O-E-F-E-R-L-E, or at Culture Mastery, which is our company's Twitter handle. The same is true on Facebook. You can find us on facebook.com forward slash the culture mastery and facebook.com forward slash the culture guy. And if you want to check out our blog, it's theculturemastery.com forward slash blog. There we'll have all the show notes, all the relevant links to this program. 
so you can always find Diane, you can find what she's doing and get registered for some of the programs they're offering via the, S um, the SIIC or the cultural detective method. You may want to get certified as a facilitator. This was episode three of the Culture Guy podcast. I look forward to hearing you on the show again, being having you as guests in the very near future. Until then, goodbye. Auf Wiedersehen. Au revoir. Hasta la vista. Thank you.